You all have probably heard of the story called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. We often just call it Jekyll and Hyde. It's a story of a doctor, uh, Jekyll, who is a handsome man, smooth skin, sharp looking, reputable, but who has a dark side to him and he wants to express it. And so he creates this potion that he will turn from Dr. Jekyll into Mr. Hyde. And so during the day, he is Dr. Jekyll, and he's a good man. And then at night, he turns into a very, very bad man. He turns into a monster of sorts. You know, it amazes me, because as I was Googling and looking up this story, the, the story was written in 1886, and, uh, and films were made uh, on this story. There were movies made in 1908, in 1912, in 1913, two times in 1920, 1931, 1941, and then two films made in 2006. ABC actually bought the rights to a program called Jekyll and Hyde. And so it's a story that people identify with. And you wonder, why do we identify with the story of Jekyll and Hyde? And I think in large part, it's because we see ourselves in that story. Have you ever noticed that at times when you are at work from nine to five, you are Dr. Jekyll, you are warm, you are winsome, you are patient, you are loving, you are all those things God calls us to me. And then when you walk home, a loved one says just a slight word off key and you become Mr. Hyde. You transform into this four-year-old monster in which everything annoys you and you just get really, really frustrated. Today, we're actually going to be talking about the sin that exists within the house, the sin that exists within the family unit. Um, You're already in here, so you can't crawl out, but this will probably get somewhat personal to you. And we're going to see that even in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our dysfunctional families, God's grace is at work. God's grace is working even in the midst of the treachery of what happens in our house. You know, the real us comes out at night. Many times we think our family brings out the worst in us, but the reality is that family brings out the real us. Who we are at night is who we really are. See, anyone can be nice to humanity, right? But it's very nice to love humans, sinners, people that get on your nerves, and so the real, of, real ones of us comes out at night. And so we see that, what, that God's grace is at work even in the midst of those troubles. And that's what leads us to today's passage. If you would, open up to Genesis chapter 27. If you have a red Bible, it's on page 22. Again, if you don't have a Bible, you'll need one. Feel free to sneak in back and grab a red Bible. Uh, we found the switch for the fans, praise God. Turn them up as high as you can. Um, We need one right up here. Let me get you up to speed on this story. Uh, In Genesis 24, Abraham's son Isaac marries a woman named Rebecca, who Abraham sent his servant away to go get. And they have this wonderful, beautiful marriage that's very nice, which is the way it always starts, right? Um, The honeymoon period is very nice, but then sin starts to enter the family. We see the consequences of sin as Abraham dies, and so Isaac grieves that, clings to his wife. But then as they get pregnant with twins, we see 
sin continuing to explode. Their twins, Jacob and Esau, war within Rebekah. They're fighting against each other. We see that um, throughout this story, there's even a time when Isaac, who's living in a foreign land, tells all of the locals that his wife is available, that she is just his sister. We see that these twins grow up and they battle against each other. Jacob deceives his brother Esau by selling him a pot of stew for his birthright. We see that uh, as, it, as the story continues, that there is this great favoritism that, that, Jake, that Isaac loves Esau, but Rebekah loves Jacob, and they favor those sons. As Isaac comes to the end of his life, uh, Isaac is trying to defy the will of God. God says that Jacob shall be the one who shall carry the covenant blessings. But Isaac is determined to give that blessing to Esau. And as Jacob and his, and his mom create this scheme to steal the blessing through deception, Esau and Isaac find out and they are horrified. And that's where we pick up today's story. And so here we are, Genesis chapter 27. We're going to read verse 41 through verse 9 of the next chapter. So this is right after Esau finds out that Jacob stole his blessing from his father. Verse 41 of Genesis 27. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. Until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite woman. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him. And directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Pedan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. And take as your wife from there, one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. That you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojourning that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there. And there, and that he, as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, 
Esau went to Ishmael and took a took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalah, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Let's pray. God, as we enter into this text and we see the horror of the consequences of sin, God, I pray that we would not merely shove our problems under the carpet and ignore them, God, but that we would bring them to light that the gospel might transform our hearts, might transform our lives, and even transform our families. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When I was growing up, I discovered something very cool. You know how you have those fireworks? I don't know what they're called, but there's like a hundred of them stringed together, and you light them, and they go pop, 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 pop. What are those called? Firecrackers? That's all that they're called? Okay. Firecrackers doesn't matter if you know the name, they're still cool, right? So what's really cool, though, is if you take one of those firecrackers, if you unwind it, and you go to the garden of your best friend's mom, and you find a flower with these big petals, and you stick it inside that flower, if you light the wick, it will go down, and the whole flower will explode. And it's awesome, but don't do that, kids, okay? Unless your parents say it's okay. But, but what you see here is the years of sin, the wick has shortened, and finally there is this explosion. And it is an absolute mess in this family of Isaac. And we're going to look today at the wreckage, but we're also going to see the grace of God in this. But let's first look at the wreckage that comes from a persistent family life caked in sin. Okay. The first consequence we see of family sin is rage. Do you remember, as we looked at the beginning of the story, what was Esau's reaction to the fact that, uh, that Jacob stole his blessing? Well, we see these words come up in verse 41 through 43. I'll just read them off to you. It says, Esau hated Jacob. Esau said to himself, I will kill my brother Jacob. Rebekah called Jacob and said to him, Your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Arise and flee until your brother's fury turns away. Esau's rage has been building over the years and finally explodes, and he wants to kill his brother. His soul will not be satisfied until Jacob suffers as much as he has. He wants revenge. You know, I know there are some of you here today who have been hurt by family members that really, you just want them to die. You wouldn't actually kill them because there would be consequences to that, but you want them to die. You want them at the very least to be hurt, to suffer as you have suffered. You know, the irony of this kind of rage is that even though this rage makes you want to hurt the other person, the rage hurts you. And, and even though in the rage you want to kill that other person, sometimes that rage kills you. You know, I, I've given you this, this saying in, in many different formats, but it works in a lot of different ways. Rage is the poison you drink, hoping the other person dies. And so we see one of the, one of the fruits of of a lifestyle of, of family sin is rage comes up. And then it goes on and we see the cover up. Verse 46 says, Then Rebekah said to Isaac, 
I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Now, this is a partial truth, which is a a full lie. But we learn in the verses just prior to this, the real reason why Rebecca wants to send Jacob away is because Esau wants to kill Jacob. One son wants to kill the other. And so she says, flee away, get away. And then she comes and she tries to cover it up, right? She puts a, a nice lipstick on it so that it looks good. And she says, send Jacob away so that he can find a wife from our kindred. You see, Rebecca is just trying to put a band-aid on a bullet wound. And she says, when it heals over, I'll bring you back. And you know what? It, it heals over. The skin heals, but the bullet is still deep inside, causing pain and trouble. And so you see, she covers it up. I know I struggle with this. I, I think, okay, if I just ignore the problem, it will go away, right? But the pain and the lack of intimacy with family members who have hurt you is still there. So we see it leads to the next consequence, which is separation. Look with me in verse 43. It says, now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. This is Rebecca talking. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while. This literally means stay with him for a few days. Okay. Stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. Until your brother's anger turns away from you. And he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Rebecca's plan was simple. I'll send Jacob away for a few days, maybe a few weeks. We'll let Esau get over it. And then we'll be back together as one big, happy family. But the painful irony of this is that Jacob doesn't go away for a few days. He doesn't even go away for a few weeks or months. Jacob goes away for two decades. And in that time, Rebecca dies. She never again sees her son alive because the separation has formed in their family and he has been pushed out. He has been pushed away. When rage and anger and sin are not properly dealt with, when it's covered with a band-aid, when it's not really dealt with, it leads to separation. Sometimes this is emotional separation where you avoid people, you're still, you're still present, but you don't talk to one another. Maybe in your mind, they become your enemy. You don't trust them with your emotions to discuss problems. The things that you used to like about them now annoy you like crazy. And so sometimes there's emotional separation. Sometimes like this, there is physical separation. Between a husband and wife, they're no longer intimate with one another. They flee from one another. They start to sleep in separate rooms. Eventually, they move out and they get divorced. This is obviously something that is rampant in today's society. Statistics show that about 40% of all marriages end in divorce. And uh, of those who periodically attend church, the statistic is the same, 40%. For those who attend church regularly, it's 20%. So there's a, one more reason to come to church. But we see the consequences of sin building on itself. Sin, when it's not properly dealt with, turns to rage. And when that's not properly dealt with, it's covered up, which eventually leads to separation, either emotionally or physically or both. And the final stage is team building. The final stage we see here. And this isn't team building in a good way. 
Look with me, if you would, in verse 8. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women, so Esau married two Canaanite women, all right? So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael, who's also a rejected line of the covenant. Ironic. He went to, he went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Esau is desperately trying to rebuild favor with his father and his mother for that case. He is trying to build a team against his brother Jacob to say, look at everyone on my side. Look at everyone who loves me. And so he's, he's taking desperate measures to try to win the favor of his parents. This is one of the most horrific scenes that you can see when, when families split apart. They start gathering people and they start demonizing the other person and saying how horrible they are and how much of a victim they are and how a good person they are. And they start accumulating people and they start drawing the sign in the land and saying, you're either with them or you're with me. And it sounds like war because that's what it evolves into. You know, I'm guessing for some of you, as we look through these ways that sin manifests itself, it's hitting close to home. I hope it is. Because sin manifests itself in all of our families in this way, either in, in your immediate family or maybe your extended family, where there is this hatred towards one another, where there is anger, where there is separation, where there is team building. And so the question is, how do we overcome this? So that as the wick is lit, the bomb doesn't explode. How do we keep this from becoming a catastrophe? How do we actually move from dysfunctional to a little less dysfunctional? To a little less dysfunctional? How do we move towards a functional family? Well, I have an acronym for you. And my wife is laughing because it's not a good one. You know, as we think about how do we expel the toxin of sin from our family? Really, it's the same way that you expel any toxin from your body. You have to barf it out. Yes, that is my acronym, BARF. All right? I couldn't think of a better one. But at least you'll remember it, right? At least the kids, remember when Pastor Dan told us we should BARF? That was awesome! You know, kids' attendance is going way up. But this actually comes from Matthew 18. It's not something I came up with. Well, BARF is something I came up with. But the steps come from Matthew 18. And really, if you ever come to me for some sort of marriage or family or some sort of counseling, what I'm going to do is help you barf. All right. That's what I'm going to help you do. Sometimes I do a better job than others, but this is what we're called to do. The first is B, which is begin with yourself. You're called to prepare your own heart, to look inside your own heart. When there's conflict in your family, you need to look and see what is the plank in your own eye. And then ask God, Lord, lead me to this person with a heart of love. In Matthew 18, it talks about what this looks like. It says, when you go with a heart of love, your goal is not to rub it in. It's not to punish them. It's not to hurt them. Your goal is to win them back. And so first, you have to begin with yourself. Second is address the problem. You have to go to the person and you have to tell them. 
not in the heat of battle, but when the time is right, something that you did really hurt me or really offended me or what you did I thought was very wrong. If they won't listen, then it's time for intervention, Matthew 18 says, and you should bring another person with you. And if they still will not listen, then you should bring the church. And so you have to address the problem with the person. Third, you have to repent. That's their job, right? Or if someone comes to you, your job is to repent, to say, I am truly sorry for the way that I sinned against you. I am truly sorry for the way that I hurt you. Will you please forgive me? And then you pledge a new obedience. See, repentance isn't done until you say, I want to change. I won't be perfect. I'm sure I will mess up again, but I want to change. Will you help me change so I do not do that again? So we see repent. Finally, F is forgive. This is the hardest of the four steps. You know, in the first three steps, Jesus spends about five verses in a par- about that. But then for forgiveness, he spends 15 verses addressing what it looks like to forgive. Because he knows it is so difficult to forgive someone who has hurt you and who has wounded you. And so he tells this story. Some of you may be familiar with it. He tells the story of a servant who goes to his king, his master. And he owes this master a lifetime worth of wages, okay? Millions of dollars. And he asks the king, will you forgive my debt? In other words, forgiveness is absorbing the debt, okay? It's taking the pain and releasing them from it, taking the financial debt and releasing from it. And so the king absorbs the debt. He forgives the debt is what it actually says in the scripture. And so he, he absorbs that millions of dollars of loss. Well, that servant walks out and obviously is probably pretty excited. But then he comes across a fellow servant who also owes him a significant amount of money. He owes him a year's worth of wages. So I don't know, 50, 60, 70,000 would be, that's a lot of money, right? And the, the, the servant begs him, please forgive my debt. And the forgiven servant says, no, I will not forgive your debt. And he's called back in and the king says this to him. He says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not, have, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay off all his debts. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. If you've received forgiveness from the great king, if you've received forgiveness from God, you must forgive your fellow servant. It is not an option. You must absorb the debt of their sin, the pain. You must not retribute it to them because we see that God has absorbed our debt by sending Jesus Christ to the cross. Our debt of sin deserved death and Jesus took that on. God took it on through his son, Jesus Christ. He absorbed the debt for our sin. And as we understand the heinousness of our sin and offense against God and the cost of his forgiveness, we can then start to forgive those in our family who have hurt us so painfully. And so you're called to barf. (laughs) Barfing, uh, both literally and figuratively, is not easy, 
It's not fun, but in both cases, it makes you better, doesn't it? It heals you. It gets the poison. It gets the toxic out of your body so that you can move forward healthy. Begin with yourself. Acknowledge your sin. Pray that you would go to them in love to win them. Address the problem. Go one-on-one and then bring friends if they do not listen. Repent. Truly, sorrowfully, plan to change. And then forgive. Release them from the debt of their sin. And so that's what God calls us to do. And we see none of this, really, in the story of Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau. The sin just builds. They never repent. You don't see forgiveness here. You just see it exploding into a catastrophe. Now, moving on, we would see that in this story, not only is there an explosion and not only is it catastrophic, but we also see the grace of God in this story. First, we see the transformation of Isaac. Isaac is actually a guy in this story who's been changed. He's the one guy where we say, okay, here's one guy who's actually trying to follow God's will. You may remember from last week when he had been deceived by Jacob and Rebekah. He finds out and he starts to shake violently, not only because he's mad, but because he figured out that God beat him. The awesomeness of God confronted him and triumphed over his plan to bless Esau. That God's will went forth and Jacob was the one who was blessed. And so he's a changed man. And you see it in, the, in, in last week's sermon also when, when he pronounces this anti-blessing on Esau, his favorite son, and says, Jacob will indeed be blessed. But here in this passage, it goes on. And he blesses Jacob again, not, not only because he's been deceived, but because he wants to, because he knows it's the will of God. He also gives Jacob this wisdom because of his heart transformation that, that Jacob should go and take a wife who worships the Lord God. That's the same thing that Isaac's father Abraham did for him, found him a wife that worshiped the same God, that his family would not be raised in a household where there is pagan worship. And then we see him bless Jacob with a greater confidence than ever before. He says that he, he wants, that he's blessing him in the name of El Shaddai, God Almighty the all-powerful one, the one who gave Abraham when he was 99 years old and El Shaddai came to him, gave him a child through his 89-year-old wife. El Shaddai who confronted Isaac and triumphed over him by blessing Jacob. And he blesses him in the name of El Shaddai. So we see the transformation of Isaac. We also see the blessing of Jacob. Look in verse three with me. He says, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful, and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojourning that God gave to Abraham. This blessing is the patriarchal succession, that the blessing of Abraham was passed on to Isaac. Now it's being passed on to Jacob, and it's saying that you are now the instrument of God's people for all eternity For the whole world. And so he passes the blessing down on to Jacob. Who will become Israel. Who will indeed have 12 sons. Who will become the 12 tribes of Israel. They will become a great nation. And they will inherit the promised land. As God had promised to Abraham. And to Isaac. And to Jacob. 
And so we see God's grace in blessing Jacob. Finally, we see God's grace in the salvation of God's people. Remember how this passage started? Esau hated Jacob. Esau wanted to kill Jacob. He was so angry. And I, I, I could bet on it that this is not only the desire of Esau, but this was the very desire of Satan. That Jacob would be killed. That the line that would lead to the people of God, that the line that would lead to the Savior of the world be snuffed out. And yet God protects that remnant through this one son, Jacob. You know, we have the illustration from our sermon series of Genesis. I think it's up here. Remnant of a Savior. Because throughout Genesis, we continually see throughout the wreckage of human sin, both in society and in the family, God preserves a remnant that leads to the Savior of the world. The remnant that was promised to the first woman, Eve, and comes through all of these descendants up to Jesus Christ. And so we see God's grace in the salvation of his people. So just to recap, we have seen the consequences of sin, rage, cover-up, separation, team building. We talked about how to, uh, to, to, to release that poison, to expel that parson by barfing it out. You can look at the acronym for that. We finished by looking at even in the midst of family wreckage, the grace of God is at work. Now, I, I want to admit that as I was putting this together, I had trouble finding the grace of God in this passage. I was looking and looking and saying, where is the grace of God in this? And it was so hard to find because the wreckage is so widespread. But the grace of God genuinely is there. And we see it in the blessing. We see it in the transformation of Isaac. We see it as God preserves a remnant. And I mention that because it's so similar to life, isn't it? And the wreckage of our family, when things are hard, when things are tough, it is so hard sometimes to see the grace of God at work, isn't it? And yet the grace of God is at work in the lives of his children, even when our households are in disorder. Let me end with this story. Some of you know my story from growing up, but I grew up in what looked like an all-American family. My dad had a great job. He was very successful. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, loved on her kids. Uh, We were all decent to good at school in that spectrum. We were all pretty good at sports. On Sunday mornings, we'd all show up, dress nice, and all walk in, sit quietly, and everyone's like, look, the perfect family. But the reality was, is we were extremely messed up, extremely messed up. I mean, there were multiple times throughout my childhood where the neighbors would call the police on us and they'd have to come and they'd have to sort things out. It was just a wreckage of a family. And in that time, I did not see the grace of God at all. I saw the face of Satan displayed in everyone around me, including in myself. And yet, looking back, I see the grace of God was at work the whole time. I look back and I see that my siblings, me and all four of my siblings, even in that wreckage, really loved and cared for one another. As I look back, I see the grace that I'm still alive because there were times where I didn't want to be living in that household. But most of all, I see the grace of God in that, in that, in that situation. God was tilling the soil to bring me and other members of my family to himself, to save us, to show us the ultimate family, 
that he won through the cross. You see, we know that God's grace is at work in horrible family dynamics because all we have to do is look at the cross where the father killed his son, where the father poured out the wrath on his son, not because of their sin, but because of our sin, that we could become the family of God. And so we see the grace of God is at work, even in the destruction of our family. You know, this summer I will have family members come to visit and I am so excited. I love them. I, I romanticize about how great it's going to be. But, but no matter what happens, you know, they, they leave and we're like, we're glad they came, but we're glad they're gone, right? You ever have that feeling like we're really glad family came, but we're also glad when they leave because the dysfunction of the family starts coming out again. And yet in this passage, we see the promise that even in the midst of our family dynamics, God's grace is at work. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that, as Jason prayed earlier, we're not saved by our moral conduct in our family. We are saved by Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for redemptions in our home, that we would be transformed like Isaac, God, and that we would lead a life that follows your will. God, if there's anyone that we need to confront, Lord, I pray you would give us courage to do that, Lord, humbly, gently, lovingly, with the right motives, God. We pray for repentance. We pray for forgiveness. And we pray that it would happen frequently. We need it. We need your help. In Christ's name, amen.